Here we are, coming out of the Christmas rush. Hope you survived okay. It is, of course, a time of year when we spend a lot of time thinking about the birth of Jesus, but in terms of Jesus' earthly life, have you ever wondered what sort of happens next? Have you ever wondered, you know, what Jesus would have been like growing up, growing up as a kid? Uh, The Bible tells us that Jesus lived the perfect life. Uh, He was a person without sin. So what on earth did that look like? Uh, Growing up as a boy myself, I certainly can't relate to the perfect person. And as much as I love my kids, uh, they're not perfect. So what, what was Jesus actually like? Did he ever say anything that was embarrassing or, or silly when he was learning to talk? Did he ever have to be asked twice to do anything at all? Was he always happy to, to sort of share his toys? Did he never, ever, ever answer back, not, not once? I, I almost think that if you were his brother or sister, it would almost be frustrating. There's no way you'd ever be able to blame anything on him. Who's going to believe it's Jesus' fault? <laughs> when it comes to the Bible, of course, it is conspicuously silent about what Jesus was like growing up as a kid. In fact, the reading that Kathy just uh, read for us from Luke's Gospel, that is the only information in the whole Bible as to what he was like as a boy. Outside the Bible, though, that's a different story. Outside of the Bible, there are heaps of traditions about what the boy Jesus was like. Here's an example of one. This one comes from the infancy Gospel of Thomas which was written a couple of hundred years after the Bible. When this boy Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a brook and he gathered together into pools the water that flowed by and made it at once clean and commanded it by his word alone. The son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there with Joseph and he took a branch from a willow and with it dispersed the water which Jesus had gathered together. When Jesus saw what he had done, he was enraged and said to him, You insolent, godless dunderhead, what harm did the pools and the water do to you? See, now you also will wither like a tree and will neither bear leaves nor root nor fruit. And immediately the lad withered up completely. And Jesus departed and went into Joseph's house. But the parents of him that who was withered took him away, bewailing his youth, and brought him to Joseph and reproached him. What a child you have, he does such things. After this again, he went through the village, and a lad ran and knocked against his shoulder. Jesus was exasperated and said to him, You shall go no further on your way. And the child immediately fell down and died. And those who saw what took place said, From where does this child spring? since every word is an accomplished deed. Now, that's just weird, isn't it? Imagine growing up in the same village as a kid like that. You just got to bump into him and he'll zap you. Friends, I've got to share, that is not in the Bible, okay? That is not in the Bible. It's from a much later time period. uh, And it's just straight out weird. But by its very existence, the fact that there's heaps and heaps of stories like that in tradition, it testifies to to this fascination that a lot of people have about what Jesus must have been like growing up. The one and only incident in the Bible, that's the one we've just heard read. It's the one about Jesus getting left behind in Jerusalem when he was just 12 years old. All of which I reckon begs the question, if this is the only event of Jesus' boyhood that makes it into the Bible, 
What's the big deal about it? What is so important about Jesus getting left behind at Jerusalem that it gets into the Bible and all the other stuff doesn't? What are you and I meant to be seeing here? What are you and I meant to be learning from this perhaps well-known story? Friends, our mission this morning, should you choose to accept it, is to discover some of these lessons. And I reckon we can sort of make an inroad into the passage by, in terms of considering the what and the where of these verses. I reckon both those things will help us see out some relevance of these verses to us today. Firstly, the what. And by that, I mean, what is it that happens in this passage? What are the main flow of events? Because let's face it, there's some quirky things that, that occur in our Bible reading this morning. Not nearly as quirky as that tradition about uh, Jesus zapping people, but there are still some unusual things that stand out of these verses. The most obvious one being, I reckon, the simple fact that Jesus gets left behind at Jerusalem and no one notices for a whole day. Now, Sue and I have friends who, when they're on holidays, they, they actually left one of their children behind at a petrol station. They are incredibly embarrassed by that, but at least they realise their mistake after 15, 20 minutes. With Jesus, thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day, verse 44 says. Then they began looking for him. Now, look, of course, everyone says, don't be too hard on on Jesus' mum and dad. It's just a sign of the times. Jews at that time, they had very extended families. The verses tell us that there's a company of them. So, look, maybe there was a heap of them who all went down to Jerusalem from Nazareth. And in the crowd, you know, Mary and Joseph, they're obviously thinking Jesus is over with Aunt Mabel or playing with his cousins or, or whatever it is. But for a whole day, they did not think to wonder where their son was. I'm sorry, I reckon that's just a little weird. Am I too hard in suggesting that maybe this is introducing it, introducing into the passage a small element of distance that actually existed between Jesus and his parents? This may not be the closest family you know. It gets more unusual though because when they finally discover where Jesus is when Jesus has gone, did you notice that when they head back to find him, we're told in verse 46 that even then it takes them, look at the verse, three days to find him. Now, very clearly, the place where they do eventually find him, the temple, very clearly, that's not where they're expecting him to be. I, I don't know, maybe they tried all the pinball parlors and the milk bars and all the place where they thought they'd, they'd be. But it takes them three days of going through all the haunts that they reckon he'd be before they eventually find him. They are clearly not on Jesus' wavelength. They clearly have no idea where they're expecting him to be. They eventually find him in the temple of all places. Could there be a suggestion here that they really are not on Jesus' wavelength? There really is a distance here in the family. But even after he's been found, unusual stuff just keeps happening. Verse 47, after three days they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me, he asked. Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Notice a couple of things here. Notice, firstly, that this 12-year-old is astonishing 
in what he understands. He's, a, he's clearly amazing people with his answers, his questions, his depth of insight, his insatiable desire to learn more and more and more about the, the, the law of God. It, it's all causing Jesus to just sort of stand out from the crowd. But it's not just what he understands, it's the depth of who he understands. Because you see, Jews at the time, they'd regularly talk about God as our father. They had a very corporate image of God as our father. Jesus refers to him as my father. There's a level of closeness with Yahweh, the God of Israel. There's a depth of intimacy that's a little bit unusual. And here's the thing to notice. It has the effect of confusing his mum and dad. Didn't you know I'd be in my dad's house, he says? His mum and dad are thinking, this isn't our house. What's he on about? Verse 50, they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, friends, I want to suggest that all these unusual sort of uh, aspects of the verses, the being left behind, the three-day search, the confusing conversation, I'm thinking it's drawing attention to to what was in fact a level of distance between Jesus and his parents. Not that he didn't love them or they didn't love him, but there's just a level of distance between them. And I reckon that's deliberately so. Luke is wanting us to notice that. He's wanting us to see that even as a 12-year-old kid, Jesus is thinking and speaking and acting on on a different level. He's operating in a different sphere of priorities. He's interacting on a different plane. His friendships, his loyalties, they're just not quite the same as the rest of the family. And it's causing distance with the rest of the family. And it's causing confusion with the rest of the family. And it's causing anxiety with the rest of the family. And I reckon Luke wants us to see that because he is paving the way for the man Jesus who later on in Luke's gospel will tell his followers that that's the sort of stuff that's going to happen to you. That if you follow me, it may well bring a level of distance and confusion and anxiety into your family as well. Later on in Luke 12, Jesus says these startling words. Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. No, I tell you, I've come to bring division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, friends, we're often thinking in terms of the fact that Jesus brings great uh, uh, um, unity and solidarity into our life with other people and other Christians. And that's true. But one of the big themes in Luke's gospel is that following Jesus will also have the effect of bringing a sense of alienation into your life to the rest of the world and maybe even a sense of division into your lives because the claims that Jesus makes on us, the monopoly that Jesus has over us, the new order of relationships and friendships and priorities that he calls us into, that can actually bring some tension and some confusion to those around us in our families who just don't get it the way we do. Being a Christian can actually bring distance between you and other people whom you love very much but who aren't Christian. 
And even in this early stage of his gospel, I'm thinking Luke's wanting us to alert us to that, showing us that that's what happened in Jesus' own life. Even at age 12, it was happening to him because he was seeking first his heavenly father. And if we do that too, well, that could create a little bit of tension in the family. Now, did you experience that over Christmas? You know, when the family got together, maybe you're the only Christian in the family, and so there were times that you just felt the odd one out. You wanted to do some things at Christmas that the rest of the family just didn't want to do. You wanted to go to church, no one else did. Some of them might have dragged themselves along with you begrudgingly or whatever. Uh, talking to people this morning at early church who had that sense of being the odd one out of the family. If you're a Christian and there are lots in your family who aren't, well, we need to brace ourselves for the fact that sadly, Jesus may actually bring some tension to our lives. And some distance between those we love. It's part and parcel of being a Christian. Jesus went through it. I'm wondering whether that's part of the lesson that uh, this passage is wanting us to alert us to. But I don't think that's the only lesson here. I think there's something else for us to learn, although for now, for that, we need to move from the what to the where of the passage. Look at me, look with me at verse 41, the very first sentence. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem. For the feast of the Passover. Now, look, I reckon that's sort of pretty interesting that out of all the things of Jesus' boyhood, uh, the one event that gets included in the gospel doesn't actually occur at Nazareth. It's not in his hometown where he would have spent by far the most of his time. The one event that gets included is, is an event that happens in Jerusalem. Why is that? Well, it's because Jerusalem in Luke's gospel is a really important place. Luke's gospel opens in Jerusalem with an angel appearing to John the Baptist's dad in the temple. Luke's gospel closes in Jerusalem with the disciples continually in the temple praising God for the resurrection of Jesus. In the first half of the chapter that we're looking at today, in the first half of chapter 2, it's all about when Jesus was just a few days old as a baby. He was presented for purification, you'll never guess where, in the temple in Jerusalem. And now you see in the second half of the chapter, in the only boyhood incident that's ever recorded in the Bible, Jesus is in Jerusalem, in the temple. And all the time, Luke is putting his gospel together this way so as to build anticipation for something very, very important that's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's as if all the other events that happen outside of Jerusalem, it's as if they're not as important. And so Luke doesn't bother including them because Jerusalem is where the action is. Or at least Jerusalem is going to be, or at least Jerusalem is where the action is going to be. Because you see, after this incident, with the boy Jesus in Jerusalem. You then enter into a period of Jesus' ministry as a man where most of Luke's gospel is taken up with Jesus travelling to Jerusalem. And after this incident with the boy Jesus in Jerusalem, the very next time Jesus appears in Jerusalem will be again at the Passover, but this time it will be as a man. And as a man, Jesus will again stand and teach in the temple. But the next time, the teachers of the law, they're not going to be amazed at his teaching. They're going to be angered at his teaching. And they're going to lay hands on him and they're going to hoist him in the air on a wooden cross and they're going to leave him there to die. And at that point, Jesus will not just be separated from his earthly parents for three days. He will be separated from his heavenly father. 
because he'll be taking the sin of the world on himself and he'll be taking the punishment for the sin of all those who follow him. And just like baby Jesus was presented for purification in Jerusalem in the first half of this chapter, and just like the boy Jesus attended the Passover in Jerusalem in this part of the chapter that we're looking at, as a man, the next time Jesus will be in Jerusalem, it will be to bring purification and it will be to be the Passover lamb for all who follow him. And it's all happening in Jerusalem. And Luke is crafting his gospel and selectively including some things and not others so as to draw attention and to build anticipation for these climactic events in Jerusalem when Jesus will go to the cross. Because in Luke's mind, it's the cross that is the centre of everything. And so he's continually wanting to point us towards it. He's continually wanting to, to, for us to dwell on its implications and to think it through. And so even when Jesus is a boy, he leaves out a whole lot, Luke leaves out a whole lot of other stuff that he could have put in, but he only records stuff that is going to help lead us to the cross. Because in Luke's mind, the cross is the centre of everything. That is when we get reconciled with God. And look, friends, I want to suggest that at this time of year, that, that, that's not a bad thing to be reminded of. Here we are, we're virtually at the end of 2007. Uh, we're getting our thoughts and our plans together for next year, maybe, starting to think about our goals, our routines, our, our challenges, our strategies, our dreams. What's 2008 going to be like? Maybe you're thinking through some New Year's resolutions. If Luke was here, he'd be telling us that whatever New Year's resolution we come up with, it ought to be revolving around keeping the cross of Jesus Christ at the centre of our lifestyle because that is the event around which all of Jesus' life from a boy is shaped and that is the event that our life should be shaped by as well. And so if next year, 2008, turns out to be the year that, I don't know, maybe it's going to be the year that you actually end up moving away from Dubbo. Well, when we move... We're not going to choose a church based on denomination or what the music's like or how convenient meeting times are. We're going to choose a church on on whether the cross of Christ is faithfully preached and held dear. And next year, we're going to choose our friends and we're going to treat our partners and we're going to shape our relationships all around keeping the cross central in our lives. And next year, every conversation we have, and every book we're going to read, and every magazine we're going to browse through, and every movie we watch over these holidays, and every idea we come across, we will be wanting to measure it and weigh it against the cross of Christ. And we're going to spend our money and we're going to direct our resources, always thinking through ways of helping to spread the news of the cross. And we are going to be delighted to hear of sisters in Christ like Sam who are helping spread the message of the cross in Christians and the media as the gospel goes out throughout all the world. Because the cross is where the action is. And Luke's gospel is shaped to show us that. Even in the events of Jesus as a boy, it's all about priming the pump, getting us ready, pointing us towards, building anticipation for the cross. Because as Samuel Rutherford, I think, put it, as a sail is to a boat and wings are to a bird, so is the cross of Christ to us. It gives us life. It gives us movement. It gives us direction. It gives us joy. And friends, there are hints of it all here in Luke chapter 2.
in an event in which the boy Jesus gets left behind in Jerusalem. The one event of the boy Jesus recorded in the whole Bible. It's put there to prepare us for the moment when the man Jesus will be in Jerusalem. And he, he will be there not just to be separated from earthly parents, but to be separated from his heavenly father. And why would he go through that? Well, it's for you. It's to bring you back to God. And Luke shapes the way he writes his gospel so as to continually throw us to the cross. That is what is central to Jesus' life and ministry. And I don't know if it's good enough for Jesus. I'd I'd be thinking it's good enough for us. It's the cross that ought to be the centre of our life and our ministry. How about I pray? Father, thank you so much for the cross. Despite the hideousness and the evilness of it, thank you that through it you've rescued us into an eternal life that we just don't deserve. Father, we'd like to ask that you'd help us to be really good at keeping the cross central in our lives, that next year in all the things that are going to compete for attention for us, that you would help us to keep the wondrous cross at the very centre of everything we do and everything we think. Father, we pray it asking for your help through your word and spirit. Amen.